Please be seated and uh, turn with me to Ephesians and chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3, we have the title of uh, today's message as Total Gospel Ministry as Planned by God. Total Gospel Ministry as Planned by God. And uh, we will be looking at just three verses today. And it's verse 11 to verse 13. <clears throat> what I'll do for now is just read those three verses. The reason being that uh, we will be looking at verse 1 down to verse 13 in the course of the sermon. And so I will hold on for the, uh, the context until we get there. So if you are in Ephesians chapter 3 now, <clears throat> let's read beginning with verse 11, it, without the context. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized or accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Well, brethren, we are back at uh, Ephesians and uh, chapter 3, having taken a brief break last weekend primarily because we had a funeral on our hands and we needed to just meditate on what the Lord was doing among us, especially that we not only lost an elderly church member, but we also lost someone who was in midlife as a member of staff here, and then we also lost a number of children that we reach out to at the Tree of Life Center in Ibex Hill. And so it was an opportunity for us to take two steps backwards and ask the question, what is the Lord saying to us? And I trust that uh, all of us would have taken some time to apply what I refer to as the warning shots to our individual lives. Just make sure that we as individuals are ready to go and meet our maker. Well, we are back in Ephesians and we are looking at the unsearchable riches of Christ. And as I say, we are primarily celebrating. So this is not a pensive opportunity to just study. This is us saying, let us celebrate that which God has given to us. We don't deserve any of it whatsoever, but in the goodness of God, he has been pleased to invite us into this meal well worth celebrating. When we entered into chapter 3, we mentioned the fact that Paul takes a bit of a detour because his main aim, when he says, for this reason, I, Paul, his main aim is to say, I bow the knee. I, I, I pray. But as he introduces himself as Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, he realizes that uh, he needs to say something. To, to enable these Ephesians to realize that his own attitude in being in this prison may not be their attitude about this news. That for them, 
Him being in prison means a disaster has befallen God's work and God's servant. And so, really, the whole atmosphere of prayer ought to be one of, Lord, deliver your servant from the place where he is. When in Paul's own heart, that, that's under any other business. He wants to pray, but he wants to pray for God to simply continue this great and glorious gospel agenda that he has. That's really where his own heart is. And so to bring the Ephesians from where they might be to where they ought to be, not feeling sorry for him, he takes a few moments to speak about really three things. One is God's eternal purpose. Number two, the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's eternal purpose. And number three, his own role in that, his, his privileged role in that. So as we go through Ephesians 3 verse 1 down to verse 13 again, I want you to notice those three things. And the reason why he is finally bringing in himself, in fact, not just finally, but keeps weaving himself in, is so that in the end, they don't feel sorry for him being in prison. Okay, let's quickly do that, and then we will look at those last few verses. So Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he immediately goes to speak about the where God has made him to steward the grace of this revelation. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And then he speaks about not just him being a steward of this, but he speaks about God's universal agenda of salvation in Christ, which brings in the Gentiles. Listen to this. Verse 4 to verse 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is this mystery? What is this information that was hidden all along? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then Paul comes back to himself and says, look at me and how privileged I am to be a part of this, not just the message, but carrying out this message far and wide. Verse 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, he's back to himself again. He's, he's overwhelmed by this privilege. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, 
that is born from the preaching of the gospel, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So you can see how he's interweaving these three themes. The purpose of God that has brought in the Gentiles and that has made him to be a preacher, a proclaimer of this same message with such abundant fruit among the Gentiles. Well, it's from that background then that the Apostle Paul <clears throat> brings this detour to an end and is basically enabling them now to appreciate why God's servants suffer. Why is he a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of these same Gentiles? Why is it a disaster that has occurred that they could have tried to prevent but failed to prevent? Is it now a real frustration that is bringing this great work to a close? No. Paul's answer is this. It is all according to plan. That's it. It's all according to plan. How does he put it? Well, first of all, he's saying that in eternity, God planned the whole of redemption. From eternity to eternity. It was all planned. And in Christ Jesus, it was now realized. It's been fulfilled in him. It's been, as it were, put into cruise stage so that now it is simply going to its final conclusion. It's a staggering statement that Paul makes here as he closes his detour. Verse 11. Verse 11. This was according to plan. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized or achieved in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not, nothing new. Paul began this letter with this same approach. If we go to the passage that uh, uh, Mr. Botter took us to, Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to notice at least three times this little phrase, according to his purpose. According to his purpose. And I want you to notice, first of all, according to his purpose in terms of election, the electing work of the Father, according to his purpose in Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross, according to his purpose in the Holy Spirit coming to bring us to new birth in him. It is all according to his purpose. Let's see that in verse 5, verse 9, and verse 11. Obviously, I will give you a bit of the context each time. With verse 5, he's dealing with the Father. And he's not just electing us in eternity, but predetermining our end. He predestined us. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Here it is. According to the purpose of his will. So God not only elected us, but predetermined our end according to this same plan. This same plan. Verse 9. He's now dealing with God the Son. He has shed his blood in verse 7. 
He's now made known his will in verse 9, and that's where we are. Making known to us the mystery of his will, there it is again, according to his purpose, which he set forth, or he accomplished, or he realized in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, it doesn't matter. All things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Again, according to plan. According to his purpose. And then finally, verse 11. As Paul now begins to talk about that same plan being realized in our individual lives. Look at the way he puts it in verse 11. In him we have obtained. So we have now come in and begun to experience this. We have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, according to the purpose, there it is again, of him who now works all things according to the counsel of his will. What he's saying there is quite simple. Life is not an accident. It's not. History is the story of God. He's seated on the throne He's got a plan. He's got an agenda. And he is carrying it out. And right at the center of that agenda is the work of redemption. Bringing men and women, sinners, who are dead in trespasses and sins, bringing them to salvation. And it's not ending there. Adding them to this worldwide body that is called the church so that it carries out his mission in the world flabbergasting even the angelic beings in eternity. That's what he's talking about here. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has now realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is this a new plan? No. We've already shown it's a plan from eternity. So then what happened when Jesus comes on the scene? It is simply a plan that was once hidden that has now been revealed. That's all. It's a plan that at one time was inside the womb and has now come forth. It's now evident. We can see it taking place. A baby, like baby Joy for the Malokotas, was not coming into existence at the point of birth. No. For nine months prior to that point where everybody was now excited, as far as God was concerned, their life had already begun. God was looking after that life, ensuring that cell after cell was developing correctly, that lungs and, and the heart and, and blood vessels and, and the brain and, and the legs and feet and so on were actually growing and, until the time came when he said, okay, now is the time for you to be set forth before the world. Now is the time for you to come out. And yes, we were all excited a few days ago, but for God, it was simply phase two. That's all. Phase two. And it was now out in the open for all to see. The same way with redemption. Initially, it was a mystery that had been hidden 
for many ages, but it was closed in this nation of Israel. It was there in God's agenda. There was the, the, the types of Christ, and it was a type of the church as the Israelites were going from Egypt all the way into the promised land. It was a type as they were offering sacrifices through all kinds of lambs or goats. It was a type when it was a Passover meal and so on. It was in the womb. Finally, the one that was represented by all this was born. He came into this world and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross. And all the promises of God were now fully realized in Christ Jesus. The eternal purpose. And from there, he was able to go back to the Father and say, it is finished. Let me have the promised Holy Spirit who I will now send into the world to go and bring in my elect people. And the Father put him on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords and said, take over, run the whole of history in order to achieve this. And consequently, men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, are hearing this gospel of Jesus Christ in the lips of preachers. They are convicted by the Holy Spirit. They are being brought on their knees to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They are being added to this one church, to this one church where God is glorified. They are becoming part of this grand army that is reaching further and further and further afield until the last of God's elect is saved, then Jesus descends to wrap up history. Paul is saying, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. The plan of God is being realized. Paul goes on to speak about one of the greatest fruits of this redemption and it is that we now have communion with God. We now have communion with God. Paul rejoices about this. Look at what he says in verse 12. So, in this Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom... <clears throat> We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith again in him, back to Christ once again. The point is bringing out is this. You remember at the beginning, or rather within chapter 2 of Romans, rather Ephesians and verse 11, he had described those of us who are Gentiles this way. Maybe let me read verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. That was your state previously. All who are outside Christ are individuals who are in God's world, but they are alone. They are alone. They don't have a living relationship with God. They don't. 
What a terrible way to live. Simply hoping to survive somehow through the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest. Seeking to fight your own way through a world of sorrow and suffering. A world of strife. And finally, having been born crying, you die groaning. And the world comes to an end for you. What a terrible way to live. But Paul is saying, what this redemption has done is it's brought us into a relationship with God. It changes everything. I can go through this world knowing it is my father's world. My father's world. But more than that, it's this. That his plans for me are wonderful beyond description. I know that. Because he's loved me with an everlasting love. And when things seem to be falling apart, I can actually just walk right into his presence like a child of a king who just into the throne room. No protocol. And while everybody is saying, Sir, Your Excellency, your son, he simply says, Dad! And that's it. Dad! Look at what he's doing. He's taking away my toy. Because there is this new relationship that I have with him. Paul is saying, in whom we have this relationship. And it's not just for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. It's for everyone who has come into this salvation. Look at the way he puts it back in chapter 2 and verse 18. Chapter 2 and verse 18. I'll begin with verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that is the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that is the Jews. And listen to this. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have access to him. We actually commune with the living God. I often say that the difference between the prayers of a person before they become Christians, when they are still religious, and the prayers of those who have become Christians is this, that the non-Christian, as religious as he might be, he says prayers. That's all they do. They say prayers. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just repeating words. When a person generally gets converted, they pray. They pray. They know they are talking to someone. That's exactly what happened with Paul. Paul was religious all his life. He was a Jew. In fact, he made such progress in Pharisaism that he was ranking among the top. When he got converted on the road to Damascus, Ananias was told to go and meet him. And the man was afraid because this guy was chopping off other people's heads. Hey, my neck might also be chopped off. And God says to him, Behold, he's praying. He's no longer saying prayers. He's praying. He's praying. 
But in chapter 3 here, Paul is not simply saying that we have access. He adds an element, an element. And it is the element of boldness and confidence, an element of courage, an element of assurance. Look at what it, the way he puts it in chapter 3. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What he's really saying is this, uh, that if, if we were to be going before God based on our own merit, based on our own achievements, yeah, we, we would be very doubtful, first of all, about access, let alone about asking and being confident that he actually hears us. But because we go to him through our faith in him, in other words, our belief concerning what God has promised and done through Jesus Christ. Our belief in all that I have just been explaining concerning God's grand agenda through Jesus Christ. We go to see the Father based on that truth. But more than that, we trust in him. We don't just believe the truth, but we trust in him. We go in on the basis of his name. We don't just say it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. We actually trust, we rely 100% on his name, his achievement, his work, his standing before God. Why should we lack confidence? Why? Why? How? He is the beloved of the Father. The Father himself says that in him I am well pleased. Why should we ever doubt that now when we go to him, he will say, I'm not interested in you. I'm not. Just get behind me. I'm busy. Why? Paul is saying, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Brethren, this is not mere theory or philosophy. It is real. If God has saved you, you know that one of the greatest changes that has happened is this. That previously you said prayers. Now you talk to God. You do. You know it. That when you are saying in Jesus' name, it's not a little phrase you've been told to add at the end of your prayers like a full stop. It is the very expression of your faith and confidence. That God, on this basis, and on this basis alone, I come. The shed blood of Christ. I am now united to him. You love me because I am in him. And you love me with the love that you loved him from all eternity. That changes the picture completely. But let me ask whether that's true about you. Have you transitioned yet from saying prayers to really pray? Have you? Have you? entered into this very real relationship with the living God 
through Jesus Christ. Have you? Friends, it's possible to go to church all your life, to even be baptized and join a Baptist church and still be a complete stranger to the real salvation that Jesus brings. To still be dead, spiritually dead, but you are among the living. It's possible to be lifeless so that what is most boring to you is reading the Bible, praying, going to church, and so on. At the first excuse, you'd like to be elsewhere. At the first excuse. Because this God is not real to you. He's not. That kind of Christianity leads to hell. It does. It leads to hell. The Christianity Paul is talking about here is real. It changes lives. It, it, it gives you a, a fresh relationship with God. You know when you are speaking that your words are reaching the ears of the governor of history, the governor who sits on the throne of the entire universe. He's your father, and you are his child. Well, Paul ends by saying, So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You say, now hang on, Paul. How has what you've just been talking about, how has that got to do with our concern right now about where you've landed? The answer is quite simple. Remember that that's where he began. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. That's where he began. And what he has been doing all along is to try and get the Ephesians out of that worldview of unrelated events that unfortunately have landed Paul in prison. He's trying to get them to see that what has happened to him is according to plan. It's according to plan. And because it's according to plan, you, you don't feel sorry because somebody's suffering. No. It's all part of this glorious agenda. Hence, he's beginning with the little phrase, at least in the ESV, so I ask you, or some other versions say, therefore I ask you. It's because of what I've just been explaining. Therefore, I am able to make this appeal to you, that you should not lose heart, you should not despair because of the three things I've talked about. So let's get back to them. First of all, it is this, that God has an eternal plan, an agenda that is actually carrying out right now. A glorious plan that is being unfolded having been achieved in Jesus Christ that's crossing history and at its very center is redemption. Number two, that it includes you, Gentiles. And that's why this message has now entered the Gentile world, the place that is full of idols, the place where there, there is chaos and, and moral anarchy, the place where 
I currently am, it includes even reaching out to you. Through individuals like me who would be at the tip of the spear coming into this darkness and therefore suffering all the consequences because this message according to this agenda must enter into this place. And then thirdly and lastly, I'm very privileged to be given that opportunity. Very privileged. So, don't despair and don't feel sorry for me. Let's try and apply this to an obvious example. A tennis player who is now in the finals and he represents your country. And for the last two to three months has been working his skin off his bones in exercises. He's kept away from so much of the food that nourishes us, that causes us to salivate, while we have been eating sumptuously from one birthday to a wedding to an employer's banquet or whatever, but there he is, sweating away. He's at the hands of a coach who, even when he's tired, the coach is saying, come on, keep on going. And all the muscles and sinews in his body are screaming. Are you feeling sorry for him? Mm -mm. I know what you're doing. You're saying, keep at it. We need you. Keep at it. For that day, we need you. Well, he's finally now in the tennis court. And the game has begun. And with his racket, there he is. He is hitting that ball. And every so often, they have to take a bit of a break. He removes his sweat. He falls, slumps down on a chair. He drinks that water and so on. You're feeling sorry for him? Uh -uh. You're looking at the score sheet. And you are saying, Keep at it. Keep at it. Well, finally, the game finishes. He's won. And he collapses on that tennis court. Collapses. Are you feeling sorry for him? You are hugging one another. Everybody, the whole nation is in uproar. The guy is flat on that. Whether it's a lawn or concrete, he's flat, exhausted, tired. Is he feeling sorry for himself? Not a chance. He's waiting for the next stage to lift that trophy. Why? Well, all the suffering was according to plan. It's part of the game. And that's what Paul is saying here. That this suffering that I am going through, my friends, as he puts it in our text there, I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Your pride. Now, that God is doing this for your sake to bring you into eternal glory. That you might of all people rejoice and rejoice and rejoice for all eternity. And so even as I'm in this prison, it's not because God has stopped listening to my prayers. No, 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 no. I have access to him. And I want to assure you, I am full of peace 
in my heart and a joy that the world cannot take away. Why? Because I'm at the center of God's will. Why? Because it is all according to plan. Oh, friends, that we might realize that this is the total package of gospel ministry. It's the total package. We, 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 we are wrong when in our minds we, we, we divest suffering from ministry, suffering from preaching, suffering from missions work, suffering from making inroads into the, the world, the kingdom of darkness. We divorce the two. We are wrong when we think like that. And so, when suffering comes our way in the midst of ministry, and we start saying, Nafileka, I'm quitting. And you abandon ship. The problem is the worldview that's in your brain. You need to come back to this worldview that made the Apostle Paul so triumphant. Two or three words as I close. Number one. Many years ago, I don't hear this anymore, but many years ago, I used to hear people saying the reason why individuals become Christians is because they are chicken-hearted. It's out of fear, they say. I don't hear it anymore. I think it's because people have realized it takes courage to be counted among God's people because they are a persecuted lot in the workplace, in the family, wherever they go, they're despised, they are hated. Who chooses such a life? It's because God has brought them in that they finally surrender to him. The one who is chicken-hearted is the one who is sitting there listening to the gospel and saying no because of the price I will have to pay if I'm numbered among them. But here is the other side, and it is this. Ministry, whether it's an apostle or a preacher or a missionary, is costly. It's costly. You pay a price. But in paying that price, your heart is full of joy because of this world view. We are soldiers in the army. You go to the barracks and look at the life of the soldiers. It's a hard life. It's according to the territory. So it is with us. But also, you might be a non-Christian here, and you are the one who's bent on making Christians suffer. You are bent on making your child who belongs to Christ suffer, or your employees suffer, or your neighbor suffer, or your friend to suffer because of Christ in their lives. My statement to you is quite simple. It's this. God is simply using you to accomplish his purpose. He's not been taken by surprise. He's not biting his nails, wondering what might happen. How on earth can he stop you? No. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, as we've been learning from Pharaoh in Exodus, is one who hardens your heart. And then at the right time, finally says, okay, I think let me now teach him a final lesson. You may be there right now. Maybe ripe for the judgment of God. My plea is 
turn from your sin and go to God through Christ. Go to him that he might have mercy on you. You are kicking against a reinforced concrete wall. It won't yield to you. You are merely hurting yourself. Turn from sin and put your faith in Christ. Finally, to all of us, I know events in life sometimes bring about real frowning providences. You feel as if you are a Paul in prison. Our role is to trust God and obey him. That's, all. That's what Paul was doing here. He's in prison. And he's saying, look, it's not because my father has shut the doors of heaven against me. No, I still have fellowship with him, communion with him. I have confidence that this is what's happening. And I'm trusting him. He knows what he is doing. And guess what? He knew what he was doing. Because most of the New Testament letters that we currently have were written when Paul was in prison. He now had the time to write. That's God. That's God. So trust him. Continue to follow obediently after him. You'll be amazed at what he will do with your life. Amen.